Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast, where we go deep on the sport of gravel cycling through in-depth interviews with product designers, event organizers, and athletes who are pioneering the sport. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, a lifelong cyclist who discovered gravel cycling back in 2016 and made all the mistakes you don't need to make. I approach each episode as a beginner to unlock all the knowledge you need to become a great gravel cyclist. This week on the broadcast, I'm going to hand the microphone over to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, who's got Katia Morizueva from Cool Cat Cycles in Katy, Texas, on the show to talk about the community she's building around the shop and leading group rides in her hometown. Before we jump in, I need to thank this week's sponsor, Dynamic Cyclist. As you know, I've been working with the Dynamic Cyclist stretching routines for a couple months now, working on increasing my mobility in support of strengthening my lower back. Dynamic Cyclist has hundreds of cycling-specific stretching routines for you to work through, including some very specific injury prevention routines. I myself am working on the low back injury prevention routine right now. The team at Dynamic Cyclist has a free trial for all their programs, so head on over to dynamiccyclist.com and check out what they have to offer. Additionally, for podcast listeners, using the code THEGRAVELRIDE, you'll get 15% off all programs. They have both a monthly membership model as well as an inexpensive annual model to cover all your stretching and strength training needs. Again, that's dynamiccyclist.com and the coupon code the gravel ride. With that business behind us, let's hand the microphone off to my co-host Randall Jacobs. What are the stories behind our local bike shops and those who run them? In the first of a series of conversations we'll be having on this topic, Katya Morzueva joins me to share how she went from growing up in Siberia to traveling the world, including an eventful stint in China that we'll get into in a moment, to founding Cool Cat Cycles and leading group rides in her chosen home of Katy, Texas. Katya's is a story of curiosity, compassion, resiliency, and service to others, and is exemplary of the transformative energy that the best shops bring to their local communities. We dive right in here, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. And now we bring to you Katya Morzueva. Do you have like a meditation practice? Uh, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more if we start talking about my injury in China, because when you are alone with a broken back, nobody to talk to because you don't speak the language, all you can do is meditate. You know, I, in an in a irony, like black humor sort of way, um, a good way to lose weight and become a Buddhist is break a back in a foreign country. <laughs> I'm fortunate in that I had a somewhat parallel experience of breaking my neck in China. I was uh, bike touring through Hainan Island in the South China Sea. But I had zero dislocation. I just ripped a process off of C3 through C5. And uh, I was in a neck brace for a few days. And then I saw a specialist and they're like, yeah, you're probably more likely to injure yourself due to muscle atrophy than to aggravate the injury. And so I was back on my bike in two weeks, which is a very different thing. Yes. Um, so but I had the best location. version of that. Yeah. I'm seeing you shared this picture of your spine with a bunch of rods and pins holding what looks like some of your upper lumbar five vertebrae yeah it's Jeez. t12 to t9 yeah um right um yeah so i have two plates and 10 screws mm -hmm. and they're holding five vertebrae together but it's only one that shattered so one actually the piece fell off 
and they went in to connect T12, T10, and T9, but then um, a T11, T10, but then the, he was not happy with the result of the surgery, my surgeon, and he came back and he said, if you want to be active in the future, we want to go back in, redo the surgery, but we will have to connect more vertebrae. And he gave me like half a day to think about it. And I just went ahead with it. So they went in again, um, you know, 12 hour surgery again. And now I'm like a bionic woman. <laughs> uh, well, let's, so let's, let's take a step back and kind of talk about how we ended up having this conversation. So <laughs> right. um, I think Craig and I had put out word in the ridership looking for um, you know, recommendations from the community on a guest. And one of the members uh, had reached out and be like, you have to talk to Katya. She does uh, a, you know, an outstanding job building community uh, in your community out there in uh, uh, what part of Texas is this? Remind me. Um, we're west of Houston. We're about 20 miles west of Houston in Katy. Yeah. And I had seen uh, some of the rides that you organize. You have a beautiful shop that you've started. Um, you are of Russian descent, spent some time in, uh, living in China, uh, really just a fascinating story and a lot of kind of values and ethos alignments around community and so on. So where do we start? Where do we want to kick off? Ooh, um, well, I think we'll want to start in 2016 okay. when we moved back to Houston from China. Uh, because that was um, that was a pivotal moment when we decided to get into a business ownership and open a local bike shop. This is you and and, and it's me and my husband. Mm -hmm. um, we traveled a lot with oil and gas. We both were in oil and gas, uh, and when we moved back here. Um, the community where we are has a lot of potential. And there was no bike shop to work with that potential. Um, and I, you know, I would be riding my bike everywhere. Uh, we ended up, even though we have a child, we ended up having only one car, which is very unusual. Um, and as I was commuting everywhere by bike, uh, or I would be working and taking the car and Robert would be riding around everywhere and my son could ride to school. Uh, we found out that there's nowhere for us to go as bike commuters just to get basic service, to get a rack and panniers that would fit my bike. Um, and there was a little, you know, there are a couple of places that I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a bike shop right here? Because I would bike past it all the time on my commute. And yeah, to come 2017, we opened a shop. <laughs> That's, uh, so you, so have you always been avid cyclists, you and your husband? Uh, no, uh, but I was, I was always not a human powered commuter. Mm -hmm. So my first car, um, I got my first car, I was 30 years old. Okay. Uh, and before, before that I lived in about six countries as a resident with oil and gas. I was born in Russia. Um, you know, for my first 20 years of life, I spent as, as a pedestrian walking, using public transportation, um, even though my family had, we had one car, I never used it. Um, and then 
you know, Australia, Dubai, New Zealand, uh, traveling all over Europe. I never felt like I needed a car. And then we moved to Houston and the reality hits you here. And it's just so shocking because I think Houston is epitome or Texas of car dependency in, in America. Hmm. And it was such a shock to my system. And I think largely, um, that formed me as as almost an American. I'm an American who doesn't have a car. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, all too common for the cities here to have been built, uh, especially the further west you go around automobiles is the primary way of getting around. You Some places you can't even cross the street because it's too many mm -hmm. lanes and there's a fence in the middle. A lot of cities were built at a time when the automobile was already present versus older European or mm -hmm. Asian cities where much more walking or horse path oriented uh, so, so yeah, it is, uh, something that fortunately cities are, a lot of cities are starting to backfill, uh, human centric, uh, transportation infrastructure, uh, and bike lanes and things like this. But, uh, my understanding is that Houston is tough for infrastructure and also for mm. weather. Mm. Well, you know, in my firm belief, uh, I was born in Siberia. So Siberia is uh -huh. not too far from polar circle. Yeah. Um, uh, in, in my opinion, you can ride all year round here. Um, actually, if you look um, at professional cyclists in the US, quite a few of them come from Texas. Um, mm. So Emily Newsom, um, she was racing Tour de France this year. She's from Fort Worth, that's Dallas. Yeah. Um, a bunch of people like Payson McCalvin, they are from uh, Hill Country, like Austin area. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the heat of Texas is underestimated. I realized that when we actually moved here, because we came from Dubai in ah. summer <laughs> and we arrived in, in August and the second day we went to zoo <laughs> and, and everybody was telling us that we we're crazy to go to the zoo park in August. We were the only people there with a two-year-old in tow. But we came from the desert and this felt amazing. It actually cools off from 100 degrees to 98 <laughs> at night. <laughs> Everything is relative. Uh, yeah. One thing that you learn when you travel and when you leave as an expat in many countries, it all depends on your frame framework. Yeah. Everything's relative. And so uh, you mentioned some of the countries you've been an expat in. This Was this all working with the same With oil company? and gas, yes, in the same company. My husband and I, we met in Neighbors Drilling International. It was the biggest land drilling contractor in the world. I was their first Russian employee working for them in, a Russian, in the territory of Russia. But mm -hmm. I'm a linguist. I'm not a petroleum engineer. I have masters in linguistics. Oh, interesting. So how many languages do you have? Uh, I studied a bunch of dead ones, okay. <laughs> like you have to, uh, Latin and old Greek, old Russian, old English. Um, I speak English and Russian. Russian is my native. Um, je parle français. I speak French a little bit. If I, I studied it in college, but it's been such a long time since I actually spoke French, but I think I will pick up pretty fast. I studied Mandarin in China. Uh -huh. Um, I found Mandarin reading and writing to be extremely interesting. And I would recommend everybody to go and look it up. I find it's like playing Lego, where you have a couple of bricks, well, a lot of bricks, and you can build anything you want if you know how to combine these bricks together. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. um, great intellectual challenge. 
I could not speak Mandarin because I could not understand the tones, even though I play piano and I have musical ear. I should be able to. I could not. I was never understood. I would go to the market in Dalian and try to say that I, I want to buy this or this is my name and nobody would understand what I'm saying. I know I'm saying it correctly if I was to write it and transcribe it in, in pinyin. Yep. But nobody could understand what I'm saying. Well, and there's a certain, um, certainly coming from an English background, there were a lot of sound. Oh, there were a few sounds that we don't have in English. Mm -hmm. So getting those mastered was critical because the subtlety is, is a critical piece. And then you have the tones and then you have the way that the tones flow mm -hmm. relative to each other. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, it's really easy to call out a non-native native speaker because even if they get the tones right, generally they, we, um, you know, the, it won't have the musicality of yes. a native speaker. Um, it was something I had to pay a lot of attention to. Uh, How did to you, that. I know you, you speak Mandarin, right? Or Cantonese? Uh, I speak Mandarin, uh, fairly fluently and then enough Cantonese to, you know, convince, uh, somebody that I speak Cantonese before I switch to Mandarin. Okay. Yeah. How long did it take you to capture the tones? Uh, I, hmm. Um, I would say it was like my second trip. So I was, I taught there okay. for a semester as an undergrad. And then I went and studied for a semester at a university, uh, Zhongshan University in Guangzhou okay. uh, for one semester and really paid attention to tones and got a, a, a firm foundation in grammar and so on at that time. Uh, and so, you know, that made me very aware and I would constantly ask if I got the tones right or check the tones. Mm -hmm. I had a, I actually had my little pocket dictionary over there uh, that I would have with me at all times. And so I, was, I had to be very intentional about it. But mm -hmm. once I got the hang of it, I it, it was very natural. So for the most part, you know, uh, my tones are pretty good. Like I can order... I can order food over the phone and then show up and they're looking for a Chinese person. So, Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> I, so um, my, my dissertation and my speciality in college uh, was to teach Russian as a foreign language to grad students and freshmen who come to college in Russia to get their degree in Russia, but they would come from foreign countries. Yeah. And um, I, I have so much appreciation for anybody who can, at adult age, capture a foreign language, you know, acquire it to an extent that they can actually freely communicate. And yet so many people, uh, especially here in the U.S., uh, do that. There's, mm. and, you know, they don't get credit. It's more like, you know, why, why do you have an accent is kind of mm. the response that is often, you know, that people often get. Mm. And, uh, you know, I having gone through that journey myself, I definitely have a lot of respect. And from what I hear, Russian is especially difficult to learn because of the number of tenses and things of this sort. Yes, yeah. Russian is pretty hard. Um, but I would recommend if you ever wanted to, to just immerse yourself and um, you'll get it. It's hard to learn it on your own, for sure. Yeah. Like, uh, I assume Mandarin would be the same <laughs> if you just tried to use Duolingo. <laughs> yeah, the the grammar of Mandarin is really easy, and that helps a lot. So I found it easier than Spanish. Oh, yes, but just yeah. being able to converse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, okay, so you had a background in linguistics mm-hmm. and teaching uh, Russian to foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you went into the oil and gas industry, traveled around the world. Mm-hmm. You and your husband ended up in outside of Houston, Texas, and you have this idea to start a bike shop. So let's, mm-hmm. what what is that journey like? Like, what was your analysis uh, like what has what has it been like actually running a small business and dealing with the the ups and downs and the the risks and the vendors and all this other? Yes. Um, well, we definitely had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. Um, <laughs> I just had this dream, so I probably need to back up back off a little bit and explain. Um, so you know, coming first, I arrived in Houston in 2010. And I saw this as an extremely car-centric community, society, city with no real urban planning. Um, and then, you know, then we go to China, then I return in 2016 and we moved to a completely different area. And suddenly I realized that there are a lot of bikeways here. Uh, the bikeways were built by, um, well, some are shared use pathways, so they're like extended sidewalks, uh, you can say, and some are actual bikeways that follow the bayou. So as you know, Houston floods, this area floods, um, everybody remembers Harvey. We have a diversion channel system to remove the water um, into the Gulf, and uh, this neighborhood is crisscrossed but a lot of bayous, and each bayou uh, has easements, so they actually own the land around the bayou. So imagine that these channels uh, that have water, grass, a lot of land, and the local management of these channels, Willowford Drainage District, are run by wonderful people who understand the value of investing back in the community. So they have realized, with the help of some bike advocates, because none of the board members actually ride bikes, or not much, but they have realized that there's a huge value in investing into bikeways along these channels. So all of this community has about 30 miles of bike trails just through our little, you know, there's about 7,000 homes here. So it's not huge. And the amount of bikeways per square mile is pretty impressive. Uh, every kid can bike to elementary school here. So with middle and high school, it's a little bit more longer to commute, but every kid can get to school by bike, walk, or on a scooter. When we came here, it's pretty impressive, and there's about five elementary schools here. But when we came in 2016, I was shocked how empty those paths are. Just made me really sad. I would be the only person riding around, you know, to local grocery store or very few other people. There may be were other people I could never see many. Um, there were a bunch of kids who would go to school, but also even now, you know, we have the streets that are full of carpool parents, people who said for 30 minutes, and they only have to cross from one street to the other, that we do have infrastructure to support their kids biking to school. So it just made me really sad. And then I thought, you know, well, if there was a bike shop and they could do some advocacy, they could maybe, you know, help the community to realize the potential that they have to see that this investment is done for them to improve their life quality um, and to, you know, reduce carbon monoxide pollution. It's that simple, right? Um, And we had the resources to do it. So, you know, we started to look around and we thought, well, let's try. So, right, we open the shop, we get all the wholesalers on board. And then, um, and then it became very interesting because, um, one thing I did not realize, you know, speaking of being a woman in, a, in the industry, I think I had a blind spot 
for any um, like uh, misconception about what women can do. Uh, because, you know, coming from Russia, Russian women deal with uh, slightly different um, issues. In the World War II, a huge population of Russian men was um, just disappeared as victims of war. And Russian women had to carry the economy essentially on their shoulders. Mm -hmm. We had female cosmonauts. We had women factory directors. We had female drivers. Like women could always do everything. Uh, my mother is a doctor, super typical. Um, you know, there was never an issue that, oh, well, she's a woman and she will have a hard time going to school or whatever. Um, my grandmothers have college education. Um, it was never even a question. Um, you know, working in oil and gas as well, I have never felt um, that I'm less than a man. And then here, running a local bike shop in Texas, opened my eyes towards some of the biases that are out there. And I remember just not even recognizing that. And I would just think, oh, well, that was strange interaction, which has just happened. But I would have somebody from here, and it typically would be a man, some of my friends, and he would come and say, oh, you know, they talk to you like that because you're a woman. <laughs> so first of all, they think you don't know anything. Mm -hmm. uh, they probably make an assumption that you are a dollar an hour employee who just comes here to say hi, bye. Mm -hmm. And we're a very small shop. So initially when we opened, it was me and my tech, uh, Michael, mm -hmm. um, who is African-American and an Eastern European woman. And we're running a bike shop in the suburb of Houston. Yeah. <laughs> so you can only imagine. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, despite all that, I think, we brought um, so much interesting, um, so many interesting characteristics, like from our, our personalities and backgrounds, that it, it works out. <laughs> so what has been the, uh, the learning curve as you've been both entrepreneurially and in terms of, you know, maybe specifics to the industry or the machine? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm trying to be positive and all I'm seeing is a lot of potential for... Um, and I think, you know, honestly, COVID has opened a lot of people's eyes to what's possible uh, when uh, you don't have to commute long hours in traffic to work and you can work from home. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's possible um, for a local environments to be built more human centered. Uh, so many cities in Europe uh, have um, revamped their urban planning. Um, and even here in the U.S., I see potential with electric bikes. Um, I really hope that understanding of climate change and the human impact in, on climate will help as well. So in terms of bike commute, I see a lot of potential. With sports and bi bicycle, cycling as a sport, it's a little bit different story. This is where I see gravel is playing a huge role. Um, and adventure by bike. Um, and that I think something with you there, right. And I think that's something that not just I learned as, you know, as we went into the business, I think everybody figured that out in the industry, that this is kind of where we're heading, uh, for, um, in terms of, you know, just running a small business, uh, in this part of, of, um, the U S 
I mean, it's what it is. You learn the skills, you, you, you know, you help, you try to stay positive. Uh, you try to work with community. Um, yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> so talk about, um, some of the, like, what do you carry? What type of shop? And then how have you gotten the word out and how do you engage with the community where you are? Right. So we started because the idea was to have a community centered shop to help normal people, quote unquote, to get out on bikes. Uh, our initial focus was mostly bike commute. And so we were the kind of shop that always carried a bunch of cruisers, step throughs, uh, single speeds, racks, fenders, commuter bags, panniers, cute helmets, um, you know, a bunch of gear for commuters. And then we have evolved a lot, uh, with gravel, uh, we all, I was a roadie even before I opened the shop. Um, I actually started psych. I was in track and field in school and then my knees just started to get really bad when I was in like late twenties. I couldn't run as much. Um, so I, you know, I had miles and I would ride with him in the trailer and like try to fight the roadies on the mm. local loop with my cruiser bike and a kid and a trainer. And then I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to get an actual road bike. <laughs> so I started, you know, I love the fitness aspect of cycling for sure, but roads here are pretty unsafe. Uh, where we are in, a, in our little pocket in Katie, it's tolerable. You can actually, I don't mind doing solo 20, 30 mile ride out here with uh, a good portion of it being in traffic. Uh, you can only do it in certain times of the day, only on certain roads. Mm -hmm. The rest of the roads are just so crazy fast and dangerous. Uh, but we have a gravel levee two miles from the shop and you can go there 24 hours. Uh, it's always empty. You will see a bunch of deer, very few people. You're totally safe. And uh, we started to train out there uh, and then we introduced a bunch of people to the levee and now we have rides out there, but my true gravel rides are about an hour from here in the car. We drive out in the country and that's when you have your hundreds and hundreds of miles of gravel. Got it. Very, very cool. So yeah, it, it has moved a little bit and then bikepacking, you know, that kind of jumped on board natural progression. I do feel like if you have a gravel bike and I tell it to my customers who come to get a bike, I say, well, you think you only want to do 20 miles of this little gravel path over here, but look at this, this is what you could do. And we have this big photographs of bikepacking trips on the mm. walls so people can see and hopefully get inspired and, you know, and go to one of our, cause we do this beginner bikepacking trips. I have one coming up this weekend, by the way. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's great. And it is part, um, so I'm fully on board with you. I've been, I mean, gravel bikes have existed in, in other forms for a long time. People were riding road bikes with 23 skinnies on mm -hmm. dirt roads long before there was something called a gravel bike and people have been bike packing since before it was called bike packing. Um, mm -hmm. but the fact that there is this focus on making versatile machines that can you know, really tackle a variety of road surfaces and have mounting points for different gear and so on just makes it so, well, why not get a machine that can do a lot more? And then it just begs the question, and why don't you get out there and have some of these experiences? And there's a, a lot of people who do good work. So so having having a group activity like what you're putting on, I would imagine just radically reduces the barrier to entry for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember... 
when I got my first road bike and, and in general, and it's going to be a little bit philosophical, but for me, cycling became an entry into society here Mm, because when we moved from Dubai, that was in 2010 when we first arrived in Texas, in Houston, and I didn't know anybody, um, uh, it is people are super friendly here and it's very international and you do start making friends very quickly. And, you know, I had a kid, um, so, you know, making friends with other parents was relatively easy, but I, I didn't, I wasn't here long enough to start going to school or to get a job. I was still, uh, getting my green card then. And I met so many people through cycling. My best friends here in Houston were all mad through a cycling group. But I remember that when I got my bike, I was still really shy. I didn't know anyone. And I ride alone. I would ride every single day by myself or have a kid in tow or have, you know, a babysitter looking or my husband looking after him. And I would go and do loops by myself in the same time, just as a way to stay fit. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about a year before I was brave enough to join any groups. And I remember I was so intimidated uh when you're a beginner and and you and you don't you don't know if you're going to be safe out there and you don't know if you're going to act right and you're going to you know say right things especially you know my language is improving hopefully (laughs) but you know it's so far from where it could be and just being so anxious about it and then all the friends that i made through second were so friendly so helpful And I think that experience allows me to be that helpful and friendly face in the shop. Mm -hmm. When I have somebody who comes in, these are my favorite customers. My favorite person in the shop is someone who wants to get into biking. Maybe they want to get their first bike, or maybe they want to start biking for groceries or to work uh, because I know what they experience. And there's, Someone who taught in college, I know how to break down activities into steps. So I can just really kind of micromanage their entry. Uh, I do beginner road rides where anybody's welcome on any bike. We will talk about what hand to use, how to ride together in a group, how not to bump into each other, um, how to act with traffic, what is the safest road to ride. I just love helping people in that way, because you never know where they're going to end up. Maybe they're going to be like me and open a bike shop years later. <laughs> it's, I, I can't tell you how many examples, uh, including my own, uh, of people who have used the bicycle as, you know, I, I've said many times on this podcast, a vehicle for connection. Mm. And so like, you know, I, the, the, the thing that I recall, like the first thing I recall being able to do on my own pretty much at any time for extended periods and really enjoy my own company was riding a bicycle, mm. like the rolling meditation part of it, the going mm-hmm. out and exploring a place from a different vantage point. Like if wherever you live, you're going to experience it very differently on a bicycle, especially a bicycle that you can take off and explore the back trails and parks and the roads that you don't take. Cause it's not the direct line between any A and B. Um, and then the community element of it, you know, rolling up next to somebody, striking up a conversation, going to your first group ride, you know, showing up in jorts and, a, and an old helmet and a bike that's falling apart and whatever, and then slowly like learning the ropes and going through that, that rite of passage. Uh, and then I also resonate very much with um, 
the opportunity for folks like ourselves who've kind of gone through a lot of that journey to just make it easier for others, like low, mm. you know, reduce the the friction, make it so that there's educational materials, make it so that there are rides that are accessible, make it so that there's content like this, conversations where people can hear like, oh, I'm, I'm not uh, unique in my slight awkwardness in getting into this. Um, you know, even the the people that seem all put together and the cool kids on the bikes were, mm. were uh, well, I'll speak for myself. I was definitely, definitely socially awkward and mm. uh, awkward in general when I first started riding. And um, very much the bike has been kind of a, a, a means of, uh, I mean, career, uh, relationships all around the world, uh, opportunities and so on. And even if you don't take this extreme path, or taking, you know, starting a bike shop, um, just the friendships that, you know, mm. that get cultivated or mm. like the, the healthy habits that get developed, the reduced mm. stress and how that impacts one's entire life. Well, and, you know, with going back to how we may appear all put together um, on our rides, um, I when I first meet people who are interested in something like a gravel ride, like say they're roadies and they're hear about gravel rides, but they're not sure if they have the skills or if they can tackle this, you know, climb and the uh, ground under you shifting all the time and you're sleeping. And I always say, look, uh, when I broke my back, I was told I was told I'm never going to bike again, and I was told that if I can, I should not. <laughs> and with all the screws that I have in there, I'm still out there, you know. And I'm 42 year old mother, <laughs> and I'm riding bikes, and I'm doing this, you know, crazy adventures. My next race is 280 miles. <laughs> all in so one go. All in one go. Yeah, it's it's an ultra bike packing thing. <laughs> Shout out to bikes of death. <laughs> Yeah, wow. it's East Texas Showdown. All right. When is this? Uh, a month from now. So I've I been have... geeking out on tires and <laughs> setups. But I've done that before, though. It's not my first show. So, Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, bravo on that. You definitely, I've never done a ride that long. Longest I've ever done was uh, a 300K ride when I was uh, training in Europe for a couple of weeks. And uh, that was the hardest day I've ever put in the saddle. So... 300k that would be about 200 miles yeah 100 and i think it ended up being like 188 or 189 miles um Probably. 186 i think is is 200 300k road or off-road road yeah yeah so okay. very different animal yes right road yes. is easier even with the mountain passes road is definitely easier to cut and i was in a i was in a peloton mm -hmm. with a bunch of other fast riders and we were like you know so i was i got carried through certain sections i mean had to do the climbs but on the on the flats we were doing 25 and i was probably putting out 150 watts and just kind of cruising we'll be doing 12. yeah <laughs> miles an hour yeah. it's yeah. off-road yeah. or 70 percent off-road that's awesome very very cool so if i can do it anyone can <laughs> well and so i also i didn't appreciate this at all when um you know when when i first reached out i only knew about a little bit about your background um, and uh, that you had this shop that was very community focused, but you know, you spent, so you broke your back cycling in China mm. and that's not 
the the full extent of your your China story. So I'm kind of, a, mm. especially as someone who spent so much time there myself, I want to hear more about how did you end up there? Uh, you were working at, with, for an orphanage there as well? Uh, yeah. So with China, it was uh, the, the time when my husband was still fully involved in oil and gas. And um, he was offered an opportunity to manage a huge, huge project in Dalian that's just mm -hmm. across from South Korea on, on the sea. Yep. Uh, there are several massive shipyards. So whatever we receive over here, a lot of that stuff, when it comes from China, it comes from Dalian or that area generically. It's about two hour flight north from Beijing. And um, yeah, we all decided to go. So um, I was going to school here, but I, you know, I said, you know, that's such an awesome opportunity to discover that part of Asia. I haven't been there before, and it's very close to Russia as well. So uh, we moved. And um, yes, I ended up, um, I was cycling there, ended up hurting myself really bad, <laughs> spent about a month in South Korea. Um, my injury was quite extensive, so I had to be placed uh, in a jet and taken over to Samsung Medical Center in, in Seoul for spinal surgeries. Um, it was easier from Dalian, it was easier to go to Seoul than to Beijing for the style of surgery that I had because it was faster. And I had collapsed lung, so I couldn't be on the plane for a long time as well. So they needed to move me somewhere where it's close and uh, good quality of healthcare. And yeah, Seoul was the closest place where they took me. And when I returned from, so I spent about a month, uh, my son and my husband were in China. I was in Korea uh, in the hospital for about a month. Uh, then I moved back when I was allowed to walk. Um, and when I arrived in Dalin, I thought, well, I can't ride my bike <laughs> uh, and I can't. I, I can't really go anywhere far. Um, what am I going to do? And there was a community. Now, Dalian is not very well known among Westerners. Uh, most of expats who go to that part of China are Chinese or uh, Japanese or Korean. Mm -hmm. So I was surrounded by um, awesome, awesome families from Japan and Korea. We made a lot of friends, especially if we could speak uh yeah, if they knew a little bit of English, that would help. Um, but yeah, there were not very many expats at all. So I try to like find myself in that community. And there was a little group of women who were going to a local orphanage uh, just to help out because um, the orphanage was understaffed. It's a public orphanage. I don't know the number, the name, just to kind of know where it's located. I could not ever read exactly what it said. Mm -hmm. Um and then I, so I would come and I would just help, help the nurses, help the IEs to take care of little kids. And then I heard that they, this orphanage was selected to participate in a pro program where older kids, so age seven, seven and up, uh, would possibly go to the U.S. and would be possibly adopted in the U.S. at that old age. I think the limit is 15 years old. So between, I want to say between seven and two fifteen, that age group. And I suggested, you know, as a linguist, I said, oh, they have to be speaking English a little bit um, because it's going to be such a trauma 
for a child, even, you know, we might think with a white person complex that we're doing this amazing thing by removing this child into a Western society, but it's a huge trauma because they're going from a familiar environment, um, you know, people who take care of them, their friends, uh, and they're dropped in, you know, this, like on the moon and they don't, they can't even express that they're hungry or that they need to go to the bathroom or, you know, any discomfort that they have. And I insisted, and it took about a month to get a permission. I think the orphanage was very concerned about me teaching something that's not correct. I don't know, maybe some, you know, it's very political, right? Yes, sure. um, so I had to be, I had to be persuasive, but also I had to be, you know, very precise and say, look, this is what I'm going to do. These are the books I'm going to use. It's going to be so simple. It's going to be just conversational language so that the kids don't suffer as much as they would with the separation anxiety from their environment. And eventually they allowed me to come. And I had a group of about maybe 10 kids and it would change. Uh, some would join and some would leave. And eventually um, a, about half of them were adopted in the U.S. And it was... Uh, it, the program became so good. I mean, I would be there several times a week regularly with lessons plans. Uh, I had typically one of the teachers stay with me, the, the orphanage uh, supervisors stay with me. So they get to learn as well. And it became so good. And the demand was so good for this type of lessons that I trained other uh, English speaking women in uh, our little community so they could come and do this. And there were some women who had teaching backgrounds, so they got it really quickly and they could come and work with kids. There was a documentary made. I mean, I had a TV crew to come and film. I think it was made for the prospective parents to see that, you know, this orphanage has this program. So you will be able to communicate with kids. I've never seen the end product, but to me, that was a sign that something that I'm doing is helpful. Mm-hmm. I was not paid. It was just totally volunteering, but I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. That's, and it's something that I know how to do. So that's really wonderful. Truly, truly wonderful. And something that, you know, when I, when you had shared that with me again, um, was very resonant. One, I've, I taught in, in I taught English mm-hmm. in China. I was teaching mm-hmm. uh, high school students. And I got to create my own curricula. I actually had 40 classes and they would rotate every two weeks. So I get an hour mm-hmm. with each class every two weeks. And so I would create curricula around, um, you know, there was one where we did uh, song lyrics. So we were like, mm-hmm. you know, singing Beatles tracks and things like that. <laughs> okay. um, and then others were, you know, just the, the creative element of being able to create uh, um, a curriculum for an audience that was really stoked just to interact um, mm-hmm. And this was back in 2004. So China was a very different place. Mm. Um, the changes have been so rapid. Uh, and then also, I, I also recall, uh, so I lived in Guangzhou for a period. And a lot of the adoptions go through Shamiandao uh, in uh, okay. Guangzhou. In um, It's the, uh, the U.S. consulate there. Mm. Um, I think it's Beijing and, and Guangzhou is where most of them go through. Mm-hmm. And so you'll, I remember going to that part of town and seeing, you know, mostly Caucasian American families there adopting these 
mostly uh, uh, female Chinese babies. Mm-hmm. And it didn't occur to me at the time um, just how, I mean, just how traumatic even at that age that is. Like these mm. these kids have already gone through the trauma of like not having their mother, mm. um, which like, you know, it's something I, I didn't appreciate uh, until doing a whole lot of uh, therapy and med- meditation and various other things, just how critical that early attachment mm. is. And then to imagine what you're describing of, you know, someone who's a teenager and is mm. already is, is very much uh, uh, in many ways formed. I mean, mm-hmm. we're constantly changing, but there's a lot of deeply ingrained patterns. There's language, there's familiarity. Then you go to a place where maybe there's no one who looks like you mm. and maybe it's not welcoming. Mm. And maybe you have yeah. these people who, who want to love you, but don't know how to speak, not just your, mm-hmm. your language with words, but your language with behaviors and things like mm. this. Um, were the, I'm curious, were the kids um, in general, were they excited about the prospect of go, being adopted outside of China or? They were, but they were also very scared. Yeah. yeah. I think, and it's, it's going, it's very sad what I will say right now, but I still remember when we were talking, we had lessons when some fa- some kids were already selected. They knew they're moving. Mm. And one kid is trying to explain, push, like he shows this, poof, poof, that people shoot. That's something that he maybe has seen in the movies on mass media, the guns in America. Yeah. And that's one thing he shows to me. And he is trying to explain, I'm scared that there are a lot of guns and, and maybe I will be killed. People shoot in America a lot. So I then have to explain. And of course, their language, you know, they've been taking classes maybe for six months prior. So their language is quite limited. But I'm trying to explain, you will not be shot in the America. There are a lot of very good people and kind people and they will love you and they will take care of you. And look, I lived in America. I've never seen a gun in America. Never. Nowhere on the street there was a person with a gun. You will not see the gun. But that that's one thing they told me immediately. Mm-hmm. It really makes it's me sad. Up. This is these are the stereotypes that Well and those stereotypes go very heavily in both directions. I remember that's when true. I was first going to China um, uh, family members being, uh, certain family members being deeply concerned, you know, it's a communist mm-hmm. country and, um, there's all of these, yes. you know, it comes from, comes from ignorance ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the, it's people often fear what they don't understand. Um, my experience there was profoundly different and, you know, it's been, in, in my very limited way in my circles, like I, I consider it a, a real opportunity to have been uh, immersed in that culture. It's, it's my second culture and be able to dispel a lot of those myths. Actually, um, yes, there's the Chinese Communist Party and yes, it has, uh, you know, a fairly authoritarian bent, but um, here's a mirror on our culture. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, like, you know, communism in China doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> Mm. Um, it's largely capitalist in some ways, more capitalist in mm-hmm. ways that have their own problems. Um, and more fundamentally at the end of the day, like people are people. That's the mm-hmm. thing that I yes. have learned. Um, and that I think learning a, another language and immersing another culture teaches more than anything is that we all have 
you know, we all have um, hopes and fears. We all have, you know, basic needs that are largely common, like, you know, security mm -hmm. and shelter and food and companionship and esteem and things like this. Um, and while culture can result in various seemingly disparate manifestations, at our core, there's a hell of a lot more in common. In fact, I, I find that at the end of the day, if I can identify someone, something in someone else, positive or negative, um, that I have it in myself as well. Mm, mm, yes. You know, through all the travels that I've done, I figured out we really need so little uh, to, well, I, maybe I speak for myself, but I think most people, and I've seen it in other expats, um, if you have a job, you have self-fulfillment and you have friends and you have, um, you know, close people that you love and take care of. And, and that's pretty much all you need. And it doesn't matter where you are. You can be, uh, you know, in a beautiful. So in China, we lived in Shangri-La. So, you know, Shangri-La, mm -hmm. yeah, the hotels, the part, right? Yeah. So in Dalian, Shangri-La Hotel had apartment complex next to it. Mm. It was just so luxurious, right? Yeah. And then in Australia, we lived in a tiny little farmhouse uh, in the middle of nowhere. And I, all my life, I lived in small apartments in Siberia or in Moscow. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you are. If you have friends, family, good health, hopefully, um, you know, basic needs are mad, uh, you're good. It's so simple. Now, this actually brings up uh, what I think might be an interesting topic, which is, I mean, you're of Russian descent. Uh, mm -hmm. You lived in Russia. You spent most of your, mm -hmm. your life in Russia. Mm -hmm. um, there's a conflict between, well, there's a perceived conflict between Russia and the West at the moment. There's a lot of, uh, I think, concern in, in American society uh, and in European society about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, maybe we can... Well, I think already this conversation should dispel some myths from uh, of you know, amongst people who've never heard, uh, you know, truly heard the voice of a of a native uh, Russian, in terms of just how much love and kindness and so on uh, you bring to the table. But uh, yeah, what is? Uh, yeah, you know, my biggest takeaway from this whole conflict right now is protect your media and freedom of speech, but, but for the media, especially, uh, have respect for those big resources, uh, like Washington Post or like New York Times or like BBC, you know, these big channels, because once they get controlled by someone, yeah, it's so easy, even in modern society with all the access to information that we have is so easy for them to block it. Whoever is in control of the narrative controls the mind, controls the politics. The Russian society is uh, really divided right now. And I, I'm sorry to say it, but I think it's heavily brainwashed. And the reason it's brainwashed is precisely because uh, all the media were banned. The free speech, so to speak, uh, media were banned, exiled. 
uh, right now the Russian the Russian platform that I personally follow they have been uh, broadcasting from Europe since 24th of February when the war started they were banned immediately so they had to move out and start broadcast from Europe the only way to listen to them in Russia to watch them would be through VPN. Mm-hmm. But just very recently, they were called pretty much a terrorist organization. And anybody who shares a screenshot, uh, an audio recording, a screen grab from a video from the program, anybody who shares on their social platform, private, like Facebook's banned, Instagram's banned, so it would be Telegram. Okay, Telegram is still allowed. If you mm-hmm. share, you are looking at potential arrest and jail time. Yeah. Uh, because you are supporting terrorism. This is how far it's gone since 24th of February last year. Um, and, you know, if somebody told me a year ago that you cannot control the whole of Russian population, you cannot switch all of the internet. Well, now my answer is yes, you can. If you make people, if you, if people are so afraid to share, um, the you know their conversations become very personal they maybe will talk face to face and they will say you know what i saw that russia just has bombed these houses and 10 children died and these were not military uh you know groups it was just a house you can say that in conversation but you cannot broadcast it on any any social platform. Mm -hmm. And that's how you just slowly, slowly you're closing, closing it up. And people who are brave enough to speak out, they either end up in jail or they get out. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Well, and just for anyone who is uh, listening and is somewhat self-satisfiedly thinking that it can't happen here, these same forces are at play in, um, you know, quote unquote, democratic societies. And mm, it can happen anywhere. <laughs> it can happen anywhere. There's definitely, uh, you know, consolidation of media. There's definitely, um, you know, certain, you know, there have been times when having certain opinions could can get you shouted down, can get you essentially canceled in a way. Mm. Um, you know, I remember when the, the Iraq war was being debated and mm. all, you know, the build up towards that. And if you had a dissenting opinion, uh, you were, you know, anti-American. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, it's, uh, in, in retrospect, it seems like a number of people on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, look at that conflict as not, uh, having borne the fruits that were promised at mm-hmm. the very least. Yes. Um, and you know, the point that I would make is, you know, we all have our beliefs, we all have our, our predispositions, um, but, you know, another form of this that seems quite pervasive here is the bubbles. You know, mm-hmm. I only, you know, I, I only read certain types of media and the other media is bad. And then the mm-hmm. people on the other side have the same sort of perspective. And so getting, having a diverse diet, including of opinions you don't like, including of opinions you don't agree with from parties that you um, don't uh, necessarily resonate with, but treating them like people who are doing their best and who may look at you in the same way and have some merits in that perspective, uh, I think is tremendously valuable and is also essential in not having a society progress in the direction mm-hmm. towards extreme polarity and factionalism and so on. And mm. so, Oh, you know, I think 
one of the best thing each of us can do to combat our own biases is step out of our own echo chambers. Uh, the more, even if you have very polarized opinions around yourself, the more opinions you surround yourself with, the better your selection is, the, you know, the more, the wider the picture you see. And here, even, you know, being a extremely liberal, super left-leaning person in Texas, um, you know, I'm surrounded by people who don't feel the same that I do. But for, you know, for many reasons, I want to know where they're coming from because there's no way for me to to build the bridge towards that side. If I ignore that side is there, mm -hmm. you have to see the other bank to be able to reach out to it. So I know there is a lot of, you know, there's so much proud polarization, whereas some people say, oh, I proudly don't, I'm not going to include in my circle this type of person who thinks that way. Like for me, it would be a gun owner. I would say, oh, well. but hey, you want to have as many opinions around yourself and, you know, to get a full picture. And, uh, you know, my message to my son, who's 13 and who's super interested in, in all politics right now, um, in being of Russian descent as well, <laughs> he loves so socialism, communism. He loves the iconography of it. Uh, he, he would wear Russian CCCP USSR t-shirt before the war. Mm. And now he's not. But, uh, you know, my message to him and everybody in his age group is, hey, critical thinking is what you want. And to develop critical thinking, you want to have a lot of sources of, of information, know how to process information, know how to, you know, digest it, find the key moments and don't just trust the loudest voice in the room. Yeah. And in Russia, going back to that, in Russia right now, um, all the loudest voices are extremely conservative. They're very polarizing. It is hard, but... That gives me even more appreciation for anybody who stands out. And there are still people who are out there protesting. Uh, there are a lot of women who protest conscription, the wives of those, you know, guys. Imagine that. Imagine you're an IT specialist or you're a banker. You have nothing against Ukraine. Never had. You have relatives over there. Uh, you are very peaceful. Never had a gun in your hand. You maybe have two kids at home and a dog. And then somebody shows up to your office, because they do it, they conscript now through offices. Uh, they come to your boss and they bring him the name of the list of names. And they're saying, we know that such and such works here. You will be responsible for distributing the conscription notes. And the boss comes into the room. They don't even know what's going on. It's just, okay, guys, you were all conscripted. Because as soon as you receive the paper, you acknowledge that you know you've been called. And you can't really back out. So you can hide and not open the door if they come to your house. People literally have been hiding. Yeah. Russian men have been running from their homes. There is a guy who built a camp in the woods, like in Taiga Forest, so that the people don't find him. He's got no address. Nobody knows where he is. Because once they see your face and once you receive it in your hand, they got you. And yeah, imagine these bankers go to war and a month later, the wife gets a note that he's dead. Mm -hmm. This is what happens to Russian soldiers. And these poor women, you know, now they have kids. They have a dead husband in the war that wasn't his to find. Uh, oh. There is a story of, a, of an IT 
or yes, someone from administrative, you know, side of life who was, who hired a lawyer to fight his conscription because by law, he was not supposed to be conscripted. He was killed while the lawyer was protesting his conscription. Mm. It was killed at the war zone. Um, not, I'm not trying to make, you know, Russia look like a victim. It is an aggressor and I'm terribly ashamed of what my country does. And when people come to the shop and they ask me, oh, where's your accent from? It is so difficult to answer this question. Like it's always been, cause I don't want to be stereotyped as someone who's Russian or someone, someone at all. Like, I don't want you to know, like I've, I lived to so many places who knows what has formed me as, as a woman right now. But, but right now, especially it's really hard. And I always give a disclaimer and I say, yes, I'm from Russia. I support Ukraine. I feel like I have mm, to say this mm. because I don't yeah. want anybody to think, because there are so many who do support the war, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Um, it's very difficult. Well, and, and again, like to, before we bring it full circle, like, you know, I, 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 I wonder if there are, you know, if, if there are any Vietnam veterans who might be listening, who might resonate mm-hmm. with some of that experience. I mean, we are yes. not immune to this in, uh, in the U S and furthermore, you know, in my own travels, um, you know, I've been to places where I've been asked to account for the choices of the government of the country I come from, particularly, mm-hmm. um, back in the, you know, 2004, 2005, 2006. Um, and, um, it, you know, as much as, uh, there's an American uh, belief in, you know, a certain set of values and like this idea that we uh, are promulgating these values in the world. Well, oftentimes the things that are, are that the population here is not paying attention to are going counter uh, to the narrative that's being put out. But um, we've, we've gone, there's going to, I think you and I will end up having another conversation at some point. Uh, <laughs> yes. I love this, that, yes. this sort of thing. But to to bring it full circle, you know, talking about like connecting with people have, mm. who have different perspectives and backgrounds and so on, um, I don't think it's at all trite to say that like this is an experience that you can have on a bicycle. Like mm-hmm. on a bicycle, you go show up for a group ride, and you know you can find rides where everyone you know is a skinny shaved shaved legged white guy in lycra who's yes. you know, going going hammering on the road ride, but. There's a lot of diversity to be had as well if you find your group and there's nothing quite like the shared ordeal of a long bike ride um, to break down barriers and help realize the humanity of another person. Mm. Oh, for sure. And, you know, speaking of diversity in cycling, um, I, I really do feel and it's, you know, it's not just, you know, singing someone's tune or what's the phrase that uh, adventure cycling in general does that. Um, mm, yeah. and by that, I mean gravel events. So I'm not specifically not saying racing, but gravel events, bike packing events. Yeah. And I feel like my contribution, um, to building or to helping reach out is because I'm a female and I'm not from here. And, you know, English is my foreign language and I'm just trying to have a good time on the bike. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm coming from this, you know, vantage point where I really don't care what you look like, how old you are, what your bike is like. I just want us to go out there and have a great time. And I want you to have a very good experience. Um, and, you know, 
the fact that cycling is still perceived as, you know, middle-aged men or younger men, super fit, um, decked out in all matching kid, you know, beautiful bike. I think it's very uh, retro. I think it's dying out. Um, the people that I see uh, are becoming a lot more, how would, just different, you know, come with what you have. And I'm so happy that, uh, at least on the gravel side of things, industry is really welcoming. There are so many women's clinics. There, you know, there are these pros who do great videos and they ride in these amazing places wearing jorts and flip flops. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is actually super encouraging to like everybody. And it's funny, I do some advocacy here where I go out and meet some decision makers, um, for local infrastructure investments. Like when there is some, I just went to a, a meeting about an extension of a highway, you know, stuff like that. I make sure if I can, I make sure to come on my bike in a skirt and like flip flops or mm -hmm. not to look at all as a cyclist, mm. um, just to, to say, look, we look the same, we are the same, we speak the same language. Like there's nothing that really separates me from you. I think there's nothing worse than going to places like that full decked out on Lycra and, and screaming pretty much. I am so different from you. Mm. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to find more commonalities than you know, something that separates us and, uh, biking for sure. It can be both. Uh, and I think that's why I gravitate to commuting by bike, bike, fuck adventure, though. I love road cycling for sport. It's amazing. It increases my FTP. Hopefully yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I follow my metrics. I do my intervals. Well, Katya, um, it's been really, really lovely connecting with you, hearing your story. I'm sure that, uh, you know, some of the members of the community will, will appreciate it as well. Uh, if folks want to find your shop, find information about uh, the work that you're doing, how, how would they go about doing so? Um, well, thank you very much. It was very nice. Uh, I, I should have mentioned that I got to know your podcast through my 20 hour drive to Colorado and I listened to 15, 15 episodes in a row, just binged on my drive. So I'm extremely honored. You don't even know how honored I am to be here. Two years ago when I was driving to Steamboat, it was Steamboat gravel race. I would have never ever imagined. Um, but to find us, um, Cool Cat Cycles website, Cool Cat Cycles. It's just one cat and she cycles with C, 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 C. Easy to remember, coolcatcycles.com. Um, and then Facebook page, all my events are on Facebook. We are also ambassadors on Ride With GPS. Mm. So you might be able to find Cool Cat Cycles. Uh, there is a, at least one route there, bikepacking route. Um, and then Instagram, Cool Cat Cycles as well. I answer all the messages quickly. Uh, I love sharing my routes. All my routes are right with GPS. My personal routes are public. I'll be very happy to send a bikepacking route, the gravel route. I'm out in the country uh, about 50 minutes from here, twice a week riding gravel. And I know those roads like my 10 fingers. <laughs> well. Um, for anyone listening who happens to be in the area around KT, 
Texas. Cool cat cycles. Cool cat <laughs> cycles. Strongly encourage you to pay them a visit and join one of their rides. And I also just want to say that it's been an honor and a privilege chatting with you as well. It's one of the joys of this role and it's something I don't take lightly. So thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Randall. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Big thank you to Randall and Katya for that interesting conversation. And big thanks to our friends at Dynamic Cyclist. Remember, use the coupon code THEGRAVELRIDE to get 15% off any Dynamic Cyclist program. If you're interested in connecting with me or Randall or Katya for that matter, I encourage you to join The Ridership. That's www.theridership.com. That's a free global cycling community where you can connect with other riders around the world to trade information about routes and rides, parts and equipment, anything that's in your gravel vocabulary. If you're able to support the show, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride, or ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. <laughs>